Hello, and welcome to The Chess Circuit, a podcast all about the wonderful game of chess. My name's Adam Ralph, and I'm your host. In this episode, Ben Graff joins me for a chat with Anthony Eskenazi, who is the CEO of JustPart.com, and also a very successful player who regularly references chess when he talks to audiences about his business strategy. If you'd like to find out more about what's going on in the chess world, search for The Chess Circuit and sign up for my free newsletter. How are you, Anthony? I haven't seen you for, well, decades, is it? I don't think it's decades. I think I showed up, uh, and I know this because my wife has reminded me, I showed up at a Golden Green Rapid play about, about 10 years ago. About 10 years, gosh, doesn't time fly? Um, and, and you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> uh, I, I think lockdown uh, has probably added a few <laughs> apart from that yeah probably. are you back in London these days I'm in I'm still in Barnet so I'm up in, in still in Barnet yeah I saw your 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 message on Facebook about a um about a grill yeah yes. something something like that and I thought hang on a minute that's North London I thought there you go now it's lovely to talk to you thanks for for agreeing to come on this is Ben Ben hey, Graff really nice to meet you hey Dave He's the proper journalist. Okay. <laughs> I just like to talk pe- talk to people about chess. You know, I haven't changed in that sense. Absolutely. But yeah. we thought we'd, um, you know, the other day I was, this is, this is absolutely true. I was just sitting here looking out at my unused parking space. And I thought of you. And I actually, I actually signed up for an account with justpark.com. I was looking at park, I was looking for park at myhouse.com. That's how out of date I was. And I signed up for an account, and I'm, I'm not kidding, within about, maybe it was less than 24 hours, I had a booking for the parking space, because I don't have a car, and I thought... Amazing. Where do you yeah, live? In Hendon, okay. in northwest London. You know, for, for those who are listening who, who don't know where I'm based, I'm in uh, Hendon, northwest London. And, um, yeah, I thought of you, and I thought, fantastic, what a fantastic success you've made of that, of that business. No, thank you. No, it's um, yeah, it's been quite, it's quite, quite a journey, quite a wild ride, but it's been um, yeah, hugely exciting, but um, quite strange. yeah. But when I googled you, obviously, um, I always put in insert name and then chess to see if I can pick up uh, any any kind of chess references, and there are lots, of course. Most notably, your 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 LinkedIn profile, which which has the chess your your chess achievements up there in pride of place which I was glad to see. It's, it's something which I, I maybe didn't fully appreciate at the time, sort of how, yeah, it was a, it was a huge, huge part of my life and I was, I was able to achieve quite a lot, but it's something I, um, it, definitely, it definitely shaped my, my character, my personality. Um, and it was such a huge part of my life. You know, as you know, when you're on the chess circuit as a kid and you're, you know, in the top, yeah, five percent. Um, you're going around tournaments at least every other weekend, mm. um, and it dominates your life. Um, but you, you're you're happy to because you to to be that in involved and play to that standard. You have to love it, and you have to also love the people involved as well. The friends you make. The I can't remember if I was more excited about playing chess or just playing football with the friends I've made. You know, between the chess games or the exchange chess games you play. You know between games um so no it's a, 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 a huge part of my life i i very much look look back fondly on i'm glad to hear that the passion hasn't gone away hopefully you're still playing occasionally yeah so i i wish i played more um but like the rest of a what looks like the the rest of the world um i i watched the queen's gambit and decided actually you know what this kind of reminded me okay let's be honest the um the tournament venues in the queen's gambit yeah a bit more glamorous <laughs> a bit more glamorous than golders green yeah. i will yeah. admit no offense adam <laughs> none taken um and um it's yeah no it did you know like like many i went on to chess.com and started playing um i i don't have a time with i've got four young kids i've obviously running a business um and 
yeah, I don't have time to play long games at the moment. So I'm playing sort of five to 10 minutes blitz chess, um, maybe one game a day, one game every other day. And I'm loving it. Um, Good. I probably made my game worse because I'm moving very quickly now. <laughs> um, but uh, blitz was never my, my strongest um, my strongest variation. But um, no, I am, I am enjoying it. Um, but yeah. So. It's the first thing we tell kids not to do just don't play so much bullet chess mm. you know one minute chess is is the death knell for any kind of common sense over the board you know especially if you you imagine all these kids at the moment who are locked down who are playing lots of blitz chess and when when we get back over the board they won't know what to do with themselves i mean they've been playing bullet chess for a for a year and a half they'll be hysterical and it's so and it's so addictive and the fact you can play you know live chess bullet tournaments 27 minutes very easy to take 27 minutes off work to do that very bad for your chest, but <laughs> and potentially bad for your career as well. I was yeah. going to say, very bad for your business. <laughs> um, no, no I, absolutely. Um, I guess the analogy I use is um, if you're a cricket fan, you know, test cricket is, you know, the long form of the game. It's like the beautiful form of the game, the natural. Um, whereas, you know, one day and everything else is great, but it doesn't feel, it's not, it doesn't feel as, you know, it's, it's like real cricket. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember going to my very first 2020 match and feeling slightly dirty, you know, mm. but, but I enjoyed it. But, you know, it just didn't feel like real, real cricket, you know. It has its place. It has a place. It has its place. Yeah. And, and my love of cricket was because my dad used to drag me to all the matches at Middlesex. And, um, you know, he would never he would never have appreciated 2020. But um, talking talking of which, my 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 fond memories of the tournaments around the time you were competing was I, I used to spend an awful lot of time talking to the parents um, while their kids played chess but your, your dad was a um, unusual in that he was a very competitive chess player a strong chess player in his own right and I, and I guess that must have helped you in your in your chess playing career. Yeah absolutely so you know my dad and I, I, I I'm I understand now that the way grades are calculated is quite different. Um, so it's probably mm. won't mean much to um, a lot of your audience, but I think my dad hovered around the sort of 120 mark for, I think maybe up to 130 at one mm. point. Um, but yeah, I, don't think, I don't think he exceeded it, but what, but what that meant was he, he was a strong player, um, you know, a decent club player and could hold his own was able to teach me and challenge me um, for you know my very, the very early years of my chess you know my chess career I guess, um, but I also and I guess I always had him as a a bit of a yardstick like I want to be beating him uh, <laughs> and, rig, and enjoying it um, and yeah so no it was it was it was absolutely helpful you know if he was a little bit worse then it would he probably wouldn't have been able to teach me as much. If he was a bit better, you know, who knows? But I actually think it was perfect. It was a perfect um, ability where he was able to teach me um, and uh, be patient with me. And um, yeah, uh, he, was, he, was, he, was, he was a phenomenal teacher. And I've, he's now teaching my, um, my eight-year-old son, my eldest, how to play. Wow. Uh, oh, lovely. Uh, play, you know, every, every Saturday morning, we'd have a Zoom call. Mm. So, yeah dot com and zoom next to each other um and they'd sit up in this room actually with a computer look next next to me and um and yeah just go through it yeah you'd analyze it um and you know when we get a chance to obviously play in real life they'll do that as well mm. he on i i kid you not i was a member of obviously a um of barnet knights when i was growing up yeah and, um i signed oscar up to barnet knights two weeks before lockdown Oh dear! <laughs> he couldn't make the first one. Oh bless him! Second one was about to go, yeah. and it was um, it was still on. So by nights was still on that day, but I had just announced to my entire company no one should be coming to the office anymore. So mm. we left our office mm. a week before the whole country lockdown, and I think there was a, a the last Barnet night session was like the next day, and I was like, Lisa, I just can't, I can't, we can't send Oscar because with a clear conscience. <laughs> There'd also been a um, uh, a publicised outbreak in Hampstead Garden suburb where Barnet yeah. Knight was based. Um, so, so, so I was like, 
So one, yeah. of, one, of the things, one of the things I'm really intrigued by is what your style as a chess player was like. And the reason, reason I'm asking is because I'm wondering if we can draw any parallels between your chess and then the career choices you took, because I guess for the listeners who don't know, and you know, correct me if I get any of this wrong, but you basically had a very safe and potentially, you know, lucrative career as a as a chartered accountant. You know, it was all, you know, you could have been very comfortable and so on. And yet, you took a massive risk to kind of go it alone to build your own business. And I'm just wondering if there was a direct link between risk taking in chests and in, in or in business, or is it, or am I over stretching things a bit? So. Funnily enough, I, I look back, um, and actually with, with, with this interview in mind, I was thinking back to, um, you know, my chess playing days. And I guess if I had, um, I guess, any regrets or like look, you know, anything like that. And, um, and, and, and also, you know, with this question, you know, what, what did I learn from this and how did it shape me? Um, the first thing which nearly everyone who knows me would say is I'm highly competitive. And I don't think it's possible not to be competitive when you are playing, you know, mano a mano against your peers on a weekly basis where it's, you know, winner takes all, ideally. Um, and especially when you're, um, you know, nearly always towards the top of the, um, uh, you know, the top, top two, three, four positions most of the time. Um, you're, you get used to winning. You, you don't particularly like losing, but you have to learn obviously to take it. And you, I think you become a good loser when, when you're a, um, a competitive chess player because you can't win all the time. Um, and also you're playing against your friends. So you, know, you win some, you lose some. Um, so highly competitive. Um, I, I was not a book reader. I, my opening theory was atrocious. Interesting. Um, I look back and actually I've noticed it now, like, don't forget when, when I was a, an active chess player, you know, we had Fritz as our, mo you know, Fritz was the, the chess game. And I think I remember when it came out, so we didn't have all the like, real-time analysis and everything else we have now. So I'm, when I'm playing chess.com and it says, you know, it tells you what number move your sort of book moves up to. And <laughs> um, like, I'm like move three or four every time. I just yeah. <laughs> and what I realize is I basically come out of the opening nearly always behind mm. and so what that probably meant was I always start in a slightly worse position than my peers um which you know you could look at it two ways one is uh, if you're looking at positive I, I did fantastically well considering I, I always started slightly behind or you could say you idiot if you just put a bit of effort into learning opening theory think about what you could have achieved um and you know so I, I, I take from both ends but um, but I guess, you know, thinking about that, I, I always relied on, I guess, natural ability rather than being a student of, of the game. Mm -hmm. And I guess if you want to look at a parallel in my career, I didn't want to take, you know, the, the sort of standard, the standard route of, you know, you do your opening theory, learn your openings um, mm -hmm. and, and build that way. I kind of did it on my own. I relied on, you know, experience you know uh you know understanding you know the, the basic principles and positions and um trying to work it all out as i went along and did it my way um uh -huh. i guess that's that's probably the most um obvious parallel mm. um i don't think it's necessarily the best way i think having uh you know open theory is uh yeah i just i i actually um read a book uh at my probably my one of my first ever opening books um I, I read a couple of chapters of one I, I had from when I was a kid, yeah. and it, it taught me it taught me something I never knew about one of the main openings I use about a variation which actually you know what that makes sense that yeah. in a stronger position I was like if I you know don't get me wrong my parents were on at me Anthony just read a bloody book you know just build up that opening repertoire um, and I remember when. Um, I can't even remember. I think it was Dundee, the British Chess Championships in Dundee. Mm. No, I can't remember, 1990-something. Um, and um, my coach at the time, um, a man who sadly passed away recently, uh, David Rumens, mm. uh, he was my coach, and he taught me the Grand Prix attack against the Sicilian. And it was the first opening which he'd, I'd, I'd ever really been properly learned and talking through different variations. 
And I'll tell you, the, I'll tell you the timing he told me, taught me that. Um, he was my chaperone, so my parents sort of gave he was, I was his responsibility. And we were up in Dundee, and I'm going into the final game of the under 14 or under 15 British Chess Championships. I am half a point behind the leader who I'm playing in the final game. I win this game, I'm British Chess Champion. And I know, um, and I've gone through, it was against Matthew Broomfield, um, who was a, much, you know, a better chess player than I, is a higher rated anyway. Um, and I'd, I'd look, I'd got all his, I've got all the openings he'd done, you know, the, re the pre rest of the tournament. I was analyzing it with David that evening. And David was like, Anthony, he's, re he's going to be planning you playing D4. Let, let me teach, he plays the Sicilian to E4. Let me teach you the Grand Prix attack. He won't be expecting it. And I can show you some really awesome variations that I think will put you in a strong position. I was like, sure, let's take it. You know, it's, it's a, um, I, I like the element of surprise. So literally the night before this big, probably the biggest game of my entire chess life, I don't use the, the opening that has, has, you know, has been tried and tested. I play E4 for the first time in maybe a decade. And what does he do? He doesn't play C5. He plays E5. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, David had prepared me for, you know, the very, you know, everyone, every, you know, it's, you can't not be a, a, a decent chess player and know the basics to the Ryan Lopez. So it was, it was fine. But um, um, all that prep work we did the night before, mm. useless. But ever since that game, I've been playing the Grand Prix attack. And I love it because it's um, yeah, it's a pawn attack against you know on the king side. It's great fun. Uh, you win some, you lose some, but every game is exciting. And to be honest, that's why I still play chess. The thrill yeah. of um, you know doing a sort of seven to ten move combination that just sort of paralyzes the opposition, sort of smothers mm. them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I still play it. I love it. And um, I owe I owe that to David and you know him having that that idea. Um, but for everyone that's wondering, I didn't win that final game. I drew it. Oh. Um, and I remember it was a, a sort of really clogged up position with pawns. And mm. I remember the final, when I, I had loads of time, but I remember the final position. And I was like, that really, I was, I was obviously slightly better, but I'd have had to take huge risk to try and you know, do something quite dangerous mm. to try and penetrate that pawn structure. And I just, to be honest, I probably should have done it, but I guess yeah. coming second is better than coming sixth. Yeah, anyway. and, it's, and, it, and it's interesting because, I mean, if I look back at my own career as a junior, one of the regrets I have now is that I drew too many games because I had that fear of losing. Mm. I didn't want to lose. And actually, you know, looking back at my younger self, I'd say, oh, why didn't you go for it a bit more? And I just wondered, you know, to do the things that you've done, you know, in your career and stuff, I mean, clearly, I, I, I don't know, were you scared? You know, was there this thing about... Or did, because it's somewhere you were able to get over this hurdle, and I, I just wonder if that was something about you not having that fear of losing, or or maybe greater conviction that, that you would succeed in what you wanted to do. I, I think there's an element of that, and actually, you know, I didn't win many tournaments. I think I won two tournaments in my life, but I came second and third a lot, mm. and I came second in two British Championships. I came third as well once, but I never won it. Um, when I went to university i got a 2-1 i was one and a half percent off at first mm. and i was actually helping tutor someone who also got a 2-1 so i kind of felt like <laughs> I, I i should have got a first um, and if i'd have bloody applied myself i would have done but i guess you know there, there, there are two examples of me sort of looking back after i graduated that was a year out afterwards traveling the world and i guess i saw i thought anthony you know looking back at my, my chess playing life, I came second a lot, but I didn't win. I didn't get the top possible degree at university. And I guess I was like, if I, if I really want to make something of myself and, and, you know, achieve, um, you know, to my, to my full potential, I've got to give it a go. And I guess when I had this idea, um, I, you know, I threw myself into it. Um, I've been doing it a long time now. There are many, I, I probably should have, I should have given up a few times because it just wasn't growing at the rate it needed to. Um, because you had a lot of resilience, didn't you? Because I, I, I read somewhere, but I think it was something like three years where until until you 
access for crowdfunding and so on, it was, you know, that must have been a very tough time, you know, knowing that you've got this idea that you can make work, but isn't working and how you hang in there during that. Yeah, absolutely. It was actually eight years. So like, really? So wow. But I did five years until we raised our first investment. Mm. Um, and that wasn't a ton of money. Um, but the first three, four years, I was surviving on, you know, probably half of what my, you know, my salary as, as a chartered accountant would be, if not less. Um, and actually much, much less. Um, so I think it was a disappointment that I'd not let myself down, but I didn't achieve what I, I thought I, I probably was capable of. Um, that gave me the drive, perseverance, and um, I guess I was just, there's just no, no one who's going to stop me, I guess. Mm. Something that chess players and entrepreneurs seem to have in common is that uh, good, successful chess players is, is it even a word, bounce back ability? You know, they, they don't, they don't worry about failing because it's all part of the process of learning and improving. Absolutely. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't have said better myself. Absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's a, you know, chess is one of those sort of zero sum games. Mm. And that, I guess that's one lesson which business has taught me. Business is not. Um, obviously, it depends on who your competitors are, et cetera, but business isn't a zero-sum game. And that is something which um, initially took a bit of adapting to. Mm. You know, just because a competitor or has, has beaten you to a deal or, um, you know, a partner has said no, that's not the end. You haven't lost. You just move on and there's another win just down the road. And I guess there, maybe there is an analogy there of chess. You know, you lose, but there's always the next game or the next tournament um, where you can where you can start again. Mm. Lost to lost to someone, you will beat them next time. Um, and I don't think there was one. I don't think there was one player on the chess circuit in my peer group who I didn't beat at least once. You had a very very good and very competitive chess coach in Dave Rumans. I mean, he was the guy who basically invented the Grand Prix attack that we that we know. I mean, did you have anyone like that in your business career? Any kind of mentor that that you kind of went to when you had a problem? Yeah, I had a few along the way. Um, obviously, I've been doing Just Park now for best, coming up to 15 years, which makes me feel very old. Um, and so, you know, at the very beginning, um, I I had a, a bit of a mentor, but I guess an advisor, someone I'd go to just like, what the hell am I doing? Um, and they'd just sort of be saying, look, you know, speak to this person, speak to that person. They can show you, you know, whether, how to build a network, how to um, inject yourself into the sort of London tech community so you can build up relationships and a network and, and find those mentors and advisors. And so I did that. And to be honest, by going to those events, I found, um, you know, one of our future investors. I found a group of friends who I've been on a few ski trips with over the years. And so um, it's it's so important, you know, whatever you're doing. And I did it, I had it first at chess where you build up, where you're part of a community. And unless you're in that community, you don't really understand it. You know, I talk to my wife now about how much fun going to chess tournaments were, was. And, you know, the football we played, as I said, the exchange chess, the camaraderie we had. And, you know, I remember when I went to uh, the Czech Republic on my first, uh, foreign trip with the England team when I was only 11 years old so it's crazy to think I was 11 years old going away with what 25 30 other kids um, and um, you know without my parents I, I don't know having young kids just it feels, feels very young um, and <laughs> it's you know I guess we've got I've got that now as well in the in the London tech community um, you know you've got your um, you're really sort of strong standout stars who are, you know, running really successful, well-known companies. Um, you've got your, um, you know, your three out of sixes, your four out of sixes, and then you've got your, um, you know, your up, your the upcoming people um, mm. who are doing mm. some really interesting things but aren't quite there yet. Um, mm. And I, I, there are not a lot of analogies with um, what. Yeah, between you know, the chess community and the London tech community and how I guess approached them and, yeah. and embraced them. But being, ele being 11 or around that age is quite a formative 
time. And uh, I know a lot of players who are in the same cohort in these events, the under 11 events, especially who's, who say, you know, even now that they, they made their lifelong friends on those trips. It, that was, that was, I don't know, even, even more than 50% of the value of those trips because they weren't aiming to be world champion or even European champion, but they made lifelong friends on those trips. And um, yeah, I mean, that, that's just, it sounds very like the kind of community you're talking about for the tech industry as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm still in touch with uh, a couple of people from um, the, the chess and a couple of guys from my, from my own club. Um, but it's always also nice to sit, to hear about people who were part of a, the chess community being very successful. The most obvious one is Demi Sasabis. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he's a, he's a, yeah, global star and um, what he's achieved, but, um, but yeah, just, I'm, I'm friendly with quite a few on, um, either LinkedIn or, or even on Facebook. And I remember a photo came, uh, came up on, on Google Photos, just saying that this was you know, eight, 22 years ago or something. <laughs> <laughs> it has that that way of reminding you about your past, doesn't it? But it was lovely. It was a photo of of, of me and four of my friends sitting at one of the most god awful restaurants in Prague. In the Czech, in not even it wasn't Prague. It was in the Czech Republic. I can't remember some bizarre, um, uh, you know, city in the I think south of, of maybe it may have been Czech, Czechoslovakia at the time. I can't remember. Um, and I saw three or four people, of which two of them were Facebook friends of mine, so I tagged them, and they just couldn't believe I still had that photo, and we're sort of reminiscing <laughs> about, um, you know, they reminded me of things I'd forgotten, and vice versa, and it's nice to still have some of those, um, I guess, connections to, to the past, and what was a very, um, yeah, fun, fun time. The other thing I, know, I noticed about all the chess players that, that I've met over the years is that we, we all like we're all problem solvers. You know, when we, when we encounter a problem, we, we don't like to go around it. We like to solve it and go right through it. And I read, I read um, briefly about the origins, origins of your company and how you came up with the idea for justpark.com. Just tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so the idea stemmed from, um, I was in, I was in San Francisco visiting some friends because I spent a, um, a sandwich year at university studying at Berkeley, a uh, fantastic university in California. Uh, that's really where I caught sort of the entrepreneurial bug. Mm. And I was back there after traveling, um, you know, around Asia, I dropped, I stopped in America on the way home uh, to visit some friends I made there. And my friend was taking me to a San Francisco Giants baseball game. Um, we're driving around, we couldn't find somewhere to park, we'd been circling the block for, I don't know, five, 10 minutes. <laughs> it'd be great if we could park in that person's driveway feels like a win-win they get some money we'll pay them 10 15 20 dollars we won't miss the beginning of the game um and we probably don't get need to get stuck in traffic in any official car park at the end of the game as well it just felt like a win-win um we didn't do it but the, that's where the sort of idea came from and it felt very much like you know solving solving a problem that every sports fan would does experience mm. um, and that's you know, in terms of problem solving, um, it's yeah. If you're if you're a competitive chess player, you can't not be a problem solver. And a lot of I get asked often in interviews, you know, how how did you come up with the idea? Mm. And it's not. I don't think coming up with ideas is rocket science. And the advice I always give people who are interested in starting a business but don't have an idea is keep a notepad or use the notes app in your phone. But every time you see something that annoys you, feels inefficient, is um, feels far too expensive for what it is, just yeah. And then at the end of every week, go through that list of problems and think of a solution, your solution. They may not be commercially viable, but what you'll do is you'll start, you know, moving into that sort of problem-solving mindset, and the the it's a blessing and a curse because mm. yes, you you can come up with some great ideas and potentially come up with some creative solutions, mm. but it can also drive you nuts because you're looking for problems and solutions everywhere you go. Yeah. It's going to be a long list. But, but I guess you're also, you're, you're also sort of testing what idea do you care enough about Correct. to want to invest in and yeah, you have to have time. time. 
but I, I always use this as a, um, an example of why, how it can get you into trouble as well. Mm. Because I remember a time where, well, it's a regular time when, let's say, you know, Lisa, my wife, will, will come to me and say, um, you know, she has a headache or she's not, um, not feeling great or something else. And I say, oh, let me get you a paracetamol or something. And she's like, just give me a bloody hug. I don't, don't stop solving my problems. It's, it's funny, Anthony. Do you know what? When you were talking before, this was kind of exactly the thought. I mean, we're all we've all got partners, but you know, I'm like you know, Catherine would be saying, "Should give me, should give me a problem, like give me the solution," and that's wrong. You know, it's the way we think. Is yeah, always, it's conducive. Exactly. Men are from Mars. It's, really it's a, a yeah, exactly, and it's um, not all problems are there to need to be solved, mm. and it's it's very difficult when. Um, I found it. I find it very difficult not to just think. Let me just solve it. It's just the natural yeah. instincts, and it is for so many people. Yeah, what's quite interesting is that that men men do that, and um, without re realizing the consequences, <laughs> you know, just give give me the answer, and you give them the answer, yeah. and um, that's not what my wife wanted at all. And, and I guess another another variation of that answer, which I'm really interested in, is you start off, you know, it's your idea, you're the founder. You, you know, and then, it, and then it kind of grows. And then over time, of course, you're building a team. You know, you have people working with you and stuff. And you have to, how do you let go? How do? You, how easy was it for you to empower other people and to let them do the stuff that they were good at? Because I can imagine a lot of people who start their own companies find, find that, you know, is, is a different skill set almost. Your role changes, I guess, as it grows. And I can imagine some, some people find that easier than, than others, maybe. I've had it really... Um, for a few reasons, the, the, the most um, the most likely reason is I ran the business on my own, mm. really without any support for five years. And you knew more about it than anybody else. And yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. I, I wrote the code. I did the yeah. marketing. I did sales. I did customer support. And so, while I'm trying to build a business and scale it and raise investment and everything else, I am the single point of failure for so much of it. Mm. And so trying to continue growing while also disseminating that information to others um, when I know I could probably do it quicker myself just because I have the, I can join those dots a lot faster um, was, was, to be honest, it was a reason why we grew very slowly for a number of years. I, I was the bottleneck. Um, mm. I didn't have enough financial resource to hire enough people to remove that bottleneck um, but I still had pressure to move quickly. Um, mm. And so that, if anything, I grew as a bottleneck rather than um, diminished as one. So, um, you know, even, even to this day, there's, there's stuff which, um, you know, I know and other people don't know. And it's, mm. you, don't, you don't know that until you, you, know, you need that information. Um, but, you know, now we're a team of, you know, 90, 95 people. So thankfully, I, a lot of people know a lot more than I do about certain things now as well. Yeah, I remember reading that you 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 slightly regret the fact that you didn't bring on a partner earlier to to relieve yourself of some of that burden as well. Yeah, I, I think it's a life of a sole founder, especially with what I did not not having the financial resources to hire people early on, means you live a, it's it's a very lonely lifestyle. Um, you know, you're a sole founder. Everyone that you employ. Yes, you can be you know, friendly with them and everything else, but ultimately they are your employees and that relationship is always going to, you know, that dynamic is always going to be in place. Um, and yeah, it, it was extremely lonely um, for, for a number of years. And I feel that having a, a co-founder who would share the highs, you know, it's important to celebrate success, but also, um, you know, uh, you know, share those really sort of painful low moments, but also just to have a complementary skill set. So mm. you're not doing everything. You can go on holiday and take a break, knowing that everything's going to be, everything's still going to be there when you get back. Um, and it just takes a lot of the sort of mm. mental burden off your shoulders to have a, I think, to have a co-founder. Plus, it's just so important to have a friend and um, bounce ideas off someone. But it also make, it significantly increases your chance of success um, to raise investment. You know, it's very hard mm -hmm. as a sole founder to raise investment because you are the company. 
and it's a lot more risk for potential investors. So um, it still happens. Some very successful, you know, um, companies are started by one person. Um, yeah. But as a first time founder, as someone who didn't have any kind of network, I was 23 years old. Um, I, it was a, um, honestly, it was like not doing any opening theory and starting out, mm. you know, a few, a few percentage points. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it's I mean, it, Sorry, Adam. no, I was just going to say, I mean, you've probably had enough of it, but, um, you know, because you have enough on your plate, but I mean, have you got any plans for any more startups, any other business ideas that you're, you're investigating or is, is this your kind of limit? Um, what I'm do- I'm involved in a few different companies, so either as an investor or uh, advisor. Um, but Just Park is very much my uh, my primary focus. Um, am I going to do something after this? Uh, definitely. How 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 big? How time consuming? Uh, I think that's a conversation I'll have to have with my family. Um, <laughs> but I definitely want to do something else. Um, and yeah, but I, I, I don't know what I'm, but I'm fascinated. My kids are all kind of three out of my four kids are now at school. Um, I'm an advisor and investor in a small education startup. I'm quite interested in education technology, and especially after, after the pandemic, when technology has been embraced by the education sector more so than, than ever before. Um, I think I'd be quite interested to see if there was um, some ideas mm. You know, because I can I can see the problems by just seeing the way my kids are educated. Yeah. You know, teachers are doing a fantastic job, but technology could uh, I think really mm-hmm. um so many exciting new um you know opportunities in education. Um, so I'd like to I'd like to explore that at some day, uh, at some point. Um, but other than education, um, nothing else has really you know really got me excited. And let's be honest, I won't lie here. Parking doesn't <laughs> excite me. No one gets out of bed one day and think, Parker, it was me or the problem I was solving that could impact. You know, I'm a driver myself. I'm sure, you know, if you've driven, you you know what it's like. Mm. Finding a parking space, especially when you're going somewhere new or somewhere busy mm. and the impact it can have on your day. Um, and yeah. what I was doing wasn't uh, entering the parking sector. It was building a technology s- solution to a everyday problem affecting millions mm. of lives. It just yeah. parking um has a negative impact on so many people's lives on a, on a near daily basis so that was that's what got me out of bed every day um and yeah it's been a it's been a bit of a wild ride yeah i remember your, your dad joseph he 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 showed me i mean he was a very good programmer and he he showed me a, he i think he basically invented the very early version of the um pairing software that the uh, english chess federation used to run tournaments so did he teach you how to code because that's something a lot of kids these days they basically teach themselves from um, a website now right so we are yeah, you're right we didn't have really the internet to learn how to code so my dad actually taught me how to code in QBasic one of the very early wow code, yeah um, uh, programming languages uh, what must have been about 1989 or 1990 and um, so you know before the birth of you know the modern internet Mm. Uh, and I yeah so so yeah obviously he was a software programmer so we had computers and we had the internet earlier than most um I I was fascinated by um you know this game called Snake on QBasic mm. uh, I think it was a gorilla game as well where you threw bananas I can't remember um and I remember looking at the code trying to understand it I didn't understand a thing but I was fascinated by it and he did teach me um, he taught me the basics. Um, he then supported me when I actually started um, Just Park or Park of My House, as it was called. He, he, it was great. I could just ask him any question about a, you know, a coding problem or a database problem or something similar. And he knew the yeah. answer. So, and I guess in a similar way to the way he, he taught me chess, which gave me a, a great foundation for, for later yeah. in life. So, um, there's your mentor right there um, and to be honest I don't give him enough credit for it but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably used to that it's okay 
Um, yeah. I remember the, all the times I'd scream at him for watching my game. Um, you know, for every parent, you know, when you're concentrating, especially when it's not going well mm. and your dad's watching over you, it's like he's the easy target. Dad, I can't concentrate. Please go away. Yeah. Blame him for... for <laughs> And you knew that he knew what was going on in your game. That's 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 the other thing. Yeah, I, I know. It's just like you know, he's but all he wants is he's just he's just curious and he's just excited for me. Yeah, um, he was my he was my biggest fan. Um, and you know, I guess what you need to to be a, I think both a successful chess player, but I guess also be successful in in life or in businesses, mm. a great support network, and yeah. you know, having people you know in your corner and um. You know, especially if you don't have a co-founder, your friends and family um, have a really important role to play. Because um, I remember being burnt out. Um, you know, one, I remember a, maybe it was a whole month where I got up in the morning and I couldn't even type on the keyboard. My, my fingers just wouldn't move because I was just so burnt out doing mm. and not 100, 110 hour bit weeks or something ridiculous. Um, mm. And um, yeah, you know, having your family and friends around just to, you know, get you out of the house or or something else which is really really important mm -hmm. um but yeah so, no, so you know. that connectivity is very very important very important i've got i've got a question actually for, for, for both of you actually i'm trying to think how to how to phrase it so i guess my, my question would be what advice would you give to say i don't know a youngish chess player who's very very talented at chess but also has opportunities to potentially pursue other kind of career options. And I don't know whether it's signing, signing up for a, a big bank or whatever it is, or could make lots of money other, in other directions. And it's, uh, and it's almost not so much what choice should maybe they make, but how should they approach that problem of deciding whether they should go all in for chess, you know, the world title, the rest of it, or how we weigh that up against what else they might do and... I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you. I don't know what you would say. I'll take that one briefly. I'll take that one briefly. Ba yeah. Based on um, a little bit of experience watching other people with their kids, rather than my own. Mm. So I don't have any kids, but I mean, my my feeling is that you should, uh, as a young talented player, you should probably take an evidence based approach to a career mm. choice. And it's mm. somebody asked me this the other day. It was a direct question. You know. Should, should my child spend, you know, all their waking hours on, on chess, you know, will they become a champion? Mm. And I had to say, well, mm. statistically, no, it's very unlikely. Mm. It's something I want them to play and I want them to play it for the rest of their life and enjoy it and read about chess and, you know, follow the candidates, um, you know, as that kind of thing. I want them to do that. But whether they'll actually be able to make a living out of it, my, my, my um the evidence in front of me not my instinct is that mm. it's very difficult to do that so mm. i think it's always good to have um a second string or even a first string mm. um and actually some of the kids that you know we anthony will probably know this better than i but these kids that, that play chess at such a high level they're usually very talented at more than one thing i mean it's not uncommon okay. for them to be really good mathematicians or musicians or just to have some other kind of string to their bow and you know it's just an old it's an old saying but it's a good one don't put all your eggs in one basket um i think it's too big um too big a practical risk what do you think anthony i i i completely agree um i think if i think if you are again depending on the age of a child um but let's be honest you're not having to make those huge um mm. career defining decisions at the age of seven you probably do start thinking about it maybe at 14 15 um but by then when you're 14 15 mm. you kind of know whether you have the have the um opportunity to become a top 50 chess player top 15 world chess player are you on that trajectory yes um, if you're not then don't put yeah definitely don't if you are then Maybe yeah, give it give it a few years. You know, if you look at the most re you know some of the most recent world champions, they are world champion in their early twenties. So you know, if you if you want to dedicate three four years of your life, and I guess I use again what I did at Just Park as an example, I quit my chartered accountancy job, which I've spent you know years planning for. Mm -hmm. I quit after six weeks <laughs> to go down this entrepreneurial journey. 
if after two, three, four years, you know, my early 20s, it hadn't worked and the business had just, you know, failed like most startups do, I would have gone back to the world of finance. And so, you know, maybe if you think you've got the opportunity to yeah. those top 50 players, absolutely go for it. Mm. Um, but you've also, you also know that, um, you know, in three, four years time, if you, if, if you kind of slow down, it doesn't look like you're going to make mm. it and um, that you can, you have something to fall back on. I think it's really interesting. I just wonder as well, maybe if you, if you look at America, people seem to just reinvent themselves more. And I think in the UK, maybe we have a tendency to, you are something and you stay as that thing. And maybe we just need to be more open to people trying different things and, and so on. And I mean, I'm really interested, Anthony. When you quit after six weeks, what what did your fa- what was your family's first reaction <laughs> to that? Because I'm just imagining, if it was my kids, I'd love to say, but I said, yeah, you're going for it. But I think my first reaction would have been, oh my goodness, what? You know, yeah. what? <laughs> so so um, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of product placement here. So I was a, I was a, I was a accepted onto the um, accounting graduate program at Deloitte. You know, one of the top four, yeah. uh, you know, big four accounting mm. firms, and I started. I'd started working on um, what was then Park at my house in May. Started my job in, uh, you know, I think late August, early September, um, and I launched the website on the twenty second of September. So about three weeks in to my um, my job. And then I spent the next three weeks when I was supposed to be doing exams and studying everything else, reacting to some of the press and publicity that the launch of this website had. I was doing stupid hours. I'd turn up at Deloitte, bags under my eyes because I've been working all night on this website. Um, and I was getting a lot of media coverage. And I basically went to one of the partners at Deloitte and said, I, I have to give this a go. This is happening. Um, I'll kick myself if you know, I, I don't want to give it up. I'm excited by it. And Deloitte were fantastic. They kept my job open for a year. They gave me, I think, one or two different partners joined me in some meetings to give me a bit of sort of advice and, and you know, free, free sort of consulting work. Um, and they said, look, we love this. You're ex- this is exactly what we want to try and encourage this kind of you know, thinking and mindset and these opportunities for us, for our employees. Um, if it works out fantastic. Obviously, we'd love you to hopefully use Deloitte as a as a um, as a professional services firm if it's successful. But if it isn't, come back to us for the next intake really? next year, um, and we'll start again. And so they kind of de-risked it for me. Um, and because of that, I won't lie. My parents were, yeah, umming and ahhing, but um, in the end, they were supportive. And because I, I guess a they knew I had that safety net, but also. Um, they could see how exciting it was and, and they were excited for me yeah that's fantastic I think we tend to regret the things that we don't do rather than the things that we try in the end that's okay. great okay. Um, Deloitte were I mean that's a great that's a great story and Deloitte were a very uh, enterprising chess sponsor at that time as well I think they sponsored several tournaments so really yeah. Did you ever go back as a as a kind of mentor to to other people in in that company? Did they ever invite, or has anyone ever invited you back to 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 do public speaking at their company? Um, I've done it. I've done it a few times. I've done it at my old school. Um, yeah. uh, I don't think I've ever done it at Deloitte. I think I may have done it at PwC. Um, but funny enough, you talk about sponsorship there, Adam. Um, I'm sure you remember when Smith and Williamson sponsored the British Chess Championships. Yeah. Um, well, Smith and Williamson are very active in the London tech entrepreneurial scene. And I always remember, I'd never heard of Smith and Williamson before. Um, and I hadn't thought about them again until I, I started the company. Um, but I'm now a client of this. And I always, I, I, you know, you're talking, talking about playing the long game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sponsoring the British Chess Championships in what, 1997 and 1998. Yeah. Finally, got a client in 2021. How cynical! No, that's brilliant. I mean, that just makes it makes perfect sense because, unlike you, I didn't, I didn't know anything about Smith and Williamson until I um, helped out at an event sponsored by them. Yeah. I did actually ask them whether whether I could open a bank account, and they very very politely um, gave me some advice about where I could <laughs> where I could bank. <laughs> uh, that's fair enough. So are you going to be um, 
following the the rebooted candidates tournament do you know that you know the saga of of um the candidates tournament it was one of those events that was interrupted by the um pandemic but basically halfway through the world championship candidate cycle and now they're well they discussed for quite a while about what they should do but they're just basically going to carry on from where they left off um tomorrow i believe i think it's i think it's tomorrow yeah, yeah. tomorrow yeah. monday uh, monday the 19th of april which will be interesting because everybody's moved on you know a year, a year and a half are you going to be following that event i to be honest i haven't been following like beyond um one of our investors sharing an office with magnus carlson in norway wow, wow. Quite, um um other, other than that link to um you know i guess the upper echelons of chess i don't know yeah. i have I haven't been following, to be honest. Um, I, I haven't. I've, I've heard that chess has become maybe it's just post Queen's Gambit, but it's become a spe- very much a spectator sport mm. online, where chess players are earning not in you know quite considerable sums of money by just showing their games, which I was like, you know, it's become you know I I know the video game industry like Mario, yeah, Call of Duty and Fortnite, so you can make a fortune by yeah just you know putting on youtube your game and like but i didn't i never yeah, it's been, i mean it's incredible i mean you know all of the top players you know the carlson's and akamoras they've all got huge followings they're all obviously very media savvy it all works really well but equally there are lots of players you know they're really good players but not at that level who have their own you know stream and all the rest of it and have their own followings and and so on so it's completely democratized chess really it's made you know yeah. And also, yeah. um, G- Gary Kasparov now turning into quite an activist. Mm. You know, I, l- I keep listening. I l- I'm, I'm a huge US politics junkie. Yeah, me I, too. Listen to, I listen to a few podcasts and suddenly it's like, our guest speaker today is Gary Kasparov. And I was like, okay, fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> I know him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember going to um, the Strand to watch him play Nigel Short in the World mm. Championship. Mm. Uh, and I remember, you know, having these little keypads where we can suggest moves. Mm. Um, and you can win prizes and that was a fun I remember going there a few times with my, with my dad um, I think that's the only time I've really sort of been a, a proper spectator yeah no, you're right I mean the world of chess has definitely changed I mean that could be a career choice for a certain type of chess player if they don't mind being on on camera pretty much every day which isn't for everybody mm. but um, some some of the best streamers aren't necessarily the strongest players mm. Um Who's my favourite streamer? I think I think Simon Williams is probably the ginger GM, as he as he's branded himself. Absolutely brilliant streamer, and nothing like you would expect a grandmaster in inverted commas to be, especially on on camera. So I think that's why he goes down so well. Yeah, and I think it's, and it is that it's being able to make that connection, isn't it? It's just like you know being the absolute best at somebody doesn't necessarily make you a good teacher. Being absolutely world champion doesn't necessarily make you a good streamer good though carlson is um you know there's, there's lots of scope i don't yeah. know did, did you see the thing i mean i don't know if you even you saw the thing about the streamer and um he played this guy whose rating had gone from a thousand to two thousand you know very very quickly you, you know the story out of like a super from yeah. smiling and um you know and he accused him meteoric of, rise yeah meteoric rise he accused him of cheating but then his social media accounts were flooded with people attacking him, saying, you know, how dare you, dare you sort of, you know, criticise criticise this person. It's just, you know, just because you're a top player, you have no respect and whatever. And, you know, the reason he's moving in the way he is is because he's using an old tablet. He's brushed up very quickly, et cetera, et cetera. There are all these, there are all these excuses. And in the end, I think they played a rematch under controlled conditions where obviously the top player absolutely killed him, I think. And I think yeah, much, much worse than he had before. But... No, he had a lot of supporters. I think everybody who had a Twitter account in Indonesia was, was sending messages of support yeah, exactly. for him. It was, because it was like national pride, wasn't it? That's what chess has become. Yeah. It's become, you know, sort of, you know, very central to identity and stuff in a way that maybe it didn't before. Yeah. Is, is there a lot of is there a lot of cheating now with online chess? I would say it was a bigger problem at the beginning of the pandemic because nobody really knew how to deal with the massive explosion of online chess and and all the problems. I mean, basically, it scales up. You know, you have you have online chess. It is basically becomes that much bigger problem. Um, but now I think I think people have 
have kind of got on top of it, it it's still something that people talk about even when they don't have any actual evidence but um i don't know about ben but i think the problem is 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 going away i think so i mean i still i still see people getting caught i saw somebody actually in a team i was playing for in a local league get got caught got caught cheating so it does still happen but i think how do they find out well, because I think, and this is the, this is the challenge, the, the algorithms are so good in the sense that what, what, what they can do is they can look at um, statistically in that position, you know, if, if one move is much stronger than all the other moves, a fairly competent player will find it. But in positions where that's not the case, you know, there's like a thousandth of the pawn between the best move and the next best, you know, statistically, they know that in a certain position, Magnus Carlsen will get, will pick the, the best move, I don't know, five, six out of 10. And statistically, so, so, so they can generate a T-score and it's just impossible, you know. You might over a few moves randomly hit that T score, but but you just you just won't over a period. And I think what's happened is the algorithms are so sophisticated that even if you try and you know take a lower ranked move, sometimes it will still pick that. And even if you do things like you don't you don't use a computer to get the best move, but you just have a blunder check on, so your blunder check just avoids you making blunders. Statistically, over time, the algorithm is going to say, "Hey, I don't know, you're, you're whatever you are, you're two thousand. You've played twenty games without a single." A single about about you know so I, I mean they're always very precious about their exact methods but I just think I don't know about you Adam but I just think the anti cheat software and people are, are smarter than the cheaters really it's probably what I think I think technology has moved on so much yeah that, um, it's not only it's very easy to cheat sadly it's also incredibly easy to detect and um, mm. you know we've we, we've come back to um, who do we have to thank for the advance in technology, especially AI technology, is Demis. Dem yeah. Demis is yeah. definitely, you know, one of those, and and Darshan Kumaran and other other strong players, yeah. who who moved into the AI industry. And when when I was, um, you know, a kid, I mean, the strongest computers were thousands of pounds to buy. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I think most decent club players could beat them. Whereas now you can get some, you can download something for free, you know, an app for your phone or you can just get a little add-on for chrome and these things are better than they're, they're stronger than most masters you know and and what what we need to do is we need to start using the technology to improve our game rather than using it to assist during games <laughs> and then we will see another explosion in in i think another leap forward in chess playing ability because we can already see it you know talking about magnus sharing an office with magnus if you look at his games I, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but he's the first modern player who who I can detect the effect of 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 computers improving his chess as a as a as a player. You know, he, he doesn't play like a computer and he, he doesn't think like a computer, but his some of his choices in in games, I mean you, you can see the the effect of um, growing up with computers without you know, without a doubt. Because yeah. quite often you'll see, you know, if you're watching a commentary, the commentary will say, oh, the computer says X, a human won't see it, and then Magnus plays it. And, but I think, to me, to me, one of the most positive things about all of this in computers and chess is that, you know, people always fear that computers would, in effect, destroy chess because they'd reduce the game and we'd, we'd understand it. But what it's actually done is it showed it's far more complicated than we ever thought, and there's actually far more possibilities rather than, rather than fewer. And I think that's, yeah. that's really... I think it's probably, you know, added to the life of the game rather than reduced it yeah actually has the advance in artificial intelligence affected your your business model you know especially during covid when so you know fewer people have been driving mm. uh no it, I, ai doesn't um you're not worried about self aut autonomous self-driving cars i i'm i'm <laughs> I still have to there's some people who are very bullish about autonomy yeah. <laughs> i'm i'm highly skeptical uh for a few reasons firstly they're still not uh being used extensively in in places like arizona which have grid-like street patterns yeah uh, beautiful weather all the time no cyclists on the road huge you know huge pavement sidewalks um so you know for that to transition to somewhere like the uk with cobbly streets bicycles going in and out um mm. i just don't see autonomous cars being on the roads in the uk in the next 15 20 years at the earliest 
Wow. And some people are saying, you know, by 2025, I'm like, yeah, I just don't see it. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I'm, I'm, I may be proved wrong. But I think the thing I did see that you were exploring, which is more relevant, I guess, is EVs yeah. and charging uh-huh. points. Um, is it worth saying about that? Because I think everybody's very interested in how we how we help the environment through electric cars and so on. And, and I think yeah, there's no, a bit of a gap there. It's um, it's one of our, our most recent initiatives and mm. I'm really excited about. So the park at my house concept was about helping um, helping those with underutilized parking spaces. So a driveway or you're a church or a school or someone else who can make that space available to the general public. So effectively repurposing private parking spaces and, and making them available to the public. Now, if you live in a flat or a terrace house where you just don't have access to off-street parking, you're highly unlikely to want to buy an electric vehicle at the moment because the inconvenience of not being able to charge at home, the range anxiety, having mm-hmm. to potentially you know, pay a lot of money for destination charging and, and waste an hour a day or an hour every time you want to charge is significant. Um, and the stats show it. Over 80% of all electric charging happens at home. And so that's going to, that may be fine now because we know that EVs tend, you know, are disproportionately owned by, um, you know, slightly, uh, you know, wealthier people um, and slightly wealthier people often have an off-street parking space. And so that problem hasn't become acute yet. Um, But as the cost of EVs starts to go down, as the cost of ownership and running these vehicles goes down and actually drops lower than your traditional combustion engine car, well, then it's going to be the attractive option for, for everybody. You know, not only is it good for the environment, not only do you get the tax incentive, no congestion charge, et cetera, but actually the cost of running it is also cheaper. But if you don't have access to an off-street parking space, mm-hmm. then it's very much going to be, you know, the separation of the haves and the have-nots. And people on lower incomes are likely to be disproportionately impacted by it. And so what we're doing is, trying to sort of democratize EV charging and EV charging infrastructure by saying, if you have an off-street parking space, you know, traditionally just parks are all about making it available for someone to park in. But I'll use my driveway as an example. I have an EV, I um, have a driveway, I charge only one, one night a week. There's a block of flats 200 meters up the road. My, no one would park in my driveway because there's free on-street parking, but someone would absolutely use my charger one, two, three nights a week. I'd be very happy for them to do so. And so what we're doing is kind of a, instead of you know, charge at my house, just charge, whatever you want to call it, but effectively encouraging homeowners with charging points to make their charges available. Uh, we've built the integrations and everything else to make that, that possible. Um, but also uh, you know, working with central government, local government and, and other energy partners to encourage more people to put charges on their driveways in their church or courts in their you know small businesses um, and and make them available in in the just park marketplace that's a really great idea so somebody who doesn't even have a car could could install a charging point in their driveway and that would incentivize people to come and park at their house yep yeah exactly. that's a fantastic and, uh, idea and we can there's a decent return on investment but also if we think it's a really good area, then Just Park could also potentially subsidize the cost of that installation as well. Mm. So, you know, so we were really excited about it because especially with the government announcing that by 2030, uh, all vehicles sold will have to be electric. And, you know, there's going to be, let's be honest, if you, you know, if either of you are thinking about, you know, changing your car in the next one or two years, yeah, you, you will be thinking yeah. electric. It may not be the right time, but you'll at least be thinking about well, it. Well, I mean, to give, to give you an example, you know, my, my day job, I work at in Corporate Affairs in National Grid. We have a company car scheme. The company car scheme now has just gone, so it's only electric. So that's, you know, which again, is, you know, that's quite interesting to think about, really. It's such a change. And, you know, so I think this is absolutely the start of some a very new era. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm speaking to a couple of your colleagues as well. Oh, really? Who are you talking to? Um. Uh, I'll, I'll message you afterwards. Yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small world. Yeah, but I'm glad. I'm glad to see that because uh, I, you know, that we have we have to we have to face up to it. I mean, even 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 London cab drivers now drive electric vehicles. 
So uh, I think the rest of us will just have to follow in their in their footsteps. That's mixing metaphors, though, isn't it? <laughs> no, that's fantastic, brilliant. You know, Anthony, it's been really nice catching up with you, and brilliant talking to you. We're no, going to have to do this again when you when you when you've got that up and running. Maybe we can we can do a follow up. Yeah, absolutely. And look, Adam, I was, it's um, when I got your message. Um, obviously, I think you and I comment occasionally on each other's Facebook posts. Yeah. But um, when I got the message, I was like, yeah, absolutely delighted to be able to, um, you know, share some stories. But also, to be honest, I would absolutely love, I, I guess, time permitting, which may be a challenge with four four kids under eight. Um, but to, you know, once the gold has been rapidly gets up and running again, or or something similar to pop by and um, even if I can't play, just say hello. But brilliant. Ho- hopefully, um, yeah. Hopefully, July tenth. Okay. That will be our first after uh, really eighteen excited. months. Yeah. Okay, fine. And what are, what kind of COVID safe restrictions are going to need to be in place? Because obviously, touching touching the same pieces and everything else. We'll see. I've got a long list. I've got a long list. But everybody says, well, fine. You know, just just get me in front of a chessboard. Yeah. You know? exactly. <laughs> Stir exactly. crazy. I think we're but, willing um, to risk it now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, most of us by um, July, you know, most of us will have had our vaccine and and the booster. So it should be, we we don't know what is going to happen. It's very difficult to predict. But, um, you know, touch wood, things go the way the government have outlined in their roadmap. And um, we can open up a little bit further, you know, every five weeks. And hopefully we can see you there. That'd be lovely. Yeah, Brilliant. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Anthony. Thanks very much, Ben. Yeah, cheers, guys. Speak to you again. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you like this, why not sign up for my free newsletter? Just Google The Chess Circuit. There's a free version and there's a paid version and your support is always welcome. See you on the next podcast.